Hello and welcome to the University of New South Wales Canberra's Navigating Uncertainty podcast series. I'm David Lee from the School of Humanities and Social Sciences, and I'm being joined today by one of Australia's foremost strategy and security experts, Professor Hugh White. Hugh White is Emeritus Professor of Strategic and Defence Studies at the Australian National University. Welcome, Hugh. Nice to be with you, David. The subject we'll be exploring today is the new Trilateral Security Pact, which was announced by the leaders of the US, the UK and Australia on 15th September 2021. Under it, the United States and Britain have agreed to help Australia to develop and acquire nuclear-powered submarines that add to the Western presence in the Pacific region. The agreement also covers key areas such as artificial intelligence, cyber warfare, underwater capabilities and long-range strike capabilities. The announcement spelled the end of a contract struck with the French in 2016 to provide conventionally powered submarines and in furious reaction, France has withdrawn its ambassadors from Washington and Canberra. While generally being lauded in the mainstream media, there have been voices of criticism and caution for example, by former Prime Ministers Paul Keating and Kevin Rudd. In the region too, the reaction has been mixed. So today we'll explore the implications of ALPAS for Australian grand strategy, for Australia's long-term defence policy and strategy, and the ramifications of the announcement for Australia's foreign and regional relations. So we might just start, you by asking What's the historical significance of ALPAS? Well, I think, David, in some ways it's a bit early to say because we'll need to look ahead 20 or 30 years to see whether these submarines and so on are ever delivered. But I think it's worth noting that although people are saying that this is the biggest development since ANZUS, for example, I think that is an exaggeration. ANZUS, after all, embodies very specific, if broadly phrased, security undertakings, um, reflects fundamental um, commitments to the parties. The, the, the ALCAS, as we see it at the moment, of course, is not even a treaty at this stage. It's just a kind of a glorified press release. Uh, has a much more, what you know, so to speak, a technical and commercial, even commercial component to it, as you said in your introduction. The content to it so far is about um, giving Australia access to a series of technologies and particularly um, nuclear propulsion technology for submarines. And so although I think it's got some some strategic significance and some very significant, some very important symbolism, I don't think it constitutes the kind of fundamental reorientation of Australia's strategic position that some of the press commentary might have suggested. Okay, well, let's just probe, what is the role of submarines in Australian strategy and defence policy? Yeah, well, that's really, really important issue to get clear on because uh, uh, a lot of the talk around this whole subject has tended to overlook the fact that in the end, submarines are capability and they're designed for doing specific military tasks. Submarines can do a lot of different things, collect intelligence, deploy special forces, all that sort of stuff. But the really fundamental thing, the things for which people buy submarines uh, are to sink ships and to sink other submarines. It's almost as simple as that. And the big question then, of course, is, well, which submarines? Whose ships, whose submarines, where do we want to do it, um, uh, and so on. And I think there's a big choice there. 
Um, what kind of what role we want for our submarines depends a lot on what our broader military strategy is. And that depends on an issue that you're very familiar with, and that is the great debate throughout Australian history as to whether we build our forces to defend ourselves or to support our allies. And if we're building our forces, building our submarine forces in, in this case, to, to support our allies, then what we need to do is have submarines that can operate with the United States and with the United States Navy, where the United States Navy wants to fight its battles, which is very much up in Northeast Asia, South China Sea, East China Sea, right up against the China coast. If, on the other hand, what we're interested in doing is defending ourselves, if that's the primary role for our forces and for our submarines, then we want then our focus is going to be closer to home. Not very close to home. Submarines always best operating at a distance, but be more, more likely to be operating in the archipelago across our north. The other difference is that if we're aiming primarily to support the United States, then the primary target for our submarines would be the adversary submarines, presumably China. That's what we're all assuming. Um, whereas uh, because the submarines were a really critical target for America because America needs to be able to protect its aircraft carriers and power projection ships from Chinese submarines. Whereas for us, uh, submarines are less, if we're defend, focusing on defending ourselves, we're less focused on, uh, on the Chinese submarines and more focused on uh, surface ships because what we want to do when we're defending ourselves is to stop an adversary projecting power towards us. So if we're if we're aiming to fight alongside the United States, then submarines optimized for hunting other submarines up off the China coast makes sense. If we are aiming to build submarines primarily to defend Australia, then hunting ships closer to Australia makes sense, and that drives a big a lot of the questions about what kind of submarines we need. And that's the very next question, which is, do we need nuclear-propelled submarines or non-nuclear submarines? Well, that's, that, <laughs> that has become the key question. Look, um, the submarines, nuclear-powered submarines, have got a lot of advantages, but, and one advantage overall in particular, and that is that they go a lot faster underwater. People often think that the big advantage of nuclear-powered submarines is that they don't need refuelling so they can sort of go to sea forever. But that's not true because uh, although they can, they, they don't run out of fuel, but their crew goes crazy um, and they run out of food or, for that matter, they run out of weapons in a hot war. And so, in, in fact, no, no, neither kind of submarine, neither conventional nuclear can really stay at sea on operations for longer than about three months. And, and the conventional submarines fuel will last that long. So that's not the big advantage for nuclear boats. The big advantage for nuclear boats is they're fast. A, a conventionally powered submarine that runs off batteries uh, when, it's, when it's submerged uh, can, cannot travel very fast, usually underwater when they're cruising along something like four knots. A nuclear powered submarine can steam along at 20 knots or even 25 knots indefinitely. And, and that, is, that is a big advantage. The other big advantage the nuclear boats have is that they don't have to come up near the surface to charge their batteries. A conventionally powered submarine doesn't have to surface, doesn't have to actually sit on the surface of the water to charge its batteries, but it does have to come up near the surface so it can poke its air intake and exhaust pipe for the diesel engines above the, above the waves. And that is obviously a moment of vulnerability for the submarines. It makes them easier to find. So nuclear boats have those two advantages. On the other hand, conventional boats also have some very big advantages. They're a lot cheaper. And that, that's, a, that's not just good for the Department of Finance. It's important strategically, operationally, because 
It means for a given investment, you can have a lot more boats and numbers are really important. Uh, the other advantage of, of conventionally powered boats is, of course, that they're just simpler. So they're lower risk, they're easy to build, they're easy to maintain. They don't make the enormous demands that maintaining and operating a nuclear reactor in a ship, in a submarine, uh, is going to make. And I think that's particularly important for Australia because, of course, we don't have an established nuclear mm -hmm. industry. And so, you know, the trade-off is that um, the, the, the nuclear-powered submarines would be better for some roles, and I would argue that if, if, going back to what we were talking about a minute ago, if our primary aim is to build forces, build a submarine capability to support the United States Navy, then I think it probably makes sense for us to get nuclear-powered submarines because the advantages of the, of the nuclear-powered boats in those op operations, far afield and chasing an adversary submarines, there, if in that kind of operation, nuclear-powered boats have a big advantage. But in the sort of operations we'd undertake, hunting ships um, closer to home, where I would argue numbers are much more important, then the advantage of, 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 of uh, nuclear boats is lower and the advantage of conventional boats uh, is higher. And just to put that in raw number terms, if we were going to spend, the government's saying that we're going to spend even more than we were going to spend on the French boats on, um, on, on these nuclear boats. So say, say we're going to spend $100 billion to get eight nuclear submarines. Um, as a through-life cost. Well, uh, the, it's pretty clear from uh, a lot of reporting that we could get uh, conventionally powered submarines for $4 billion each in their through-life cost. And so if we spend $100 billion, we could get 25 nuclear, conventionally powered submarines for the price of eight nuclear powered submarines. And that, that advantage in numbers, I think, outweighs the advantage in performance of the of, of the nuclear boats and for that reason i think there's a very real question as to which is which is best for australia well let's now look at the french project which was agreed in back in the days of the turnbull government why did the turnbull government choose it was it a sound decision and what went wrong with the project in your view well it, uh, a, a lot went wrong with it but let's start at the beginning and say there's nothing wrong with french submarines the french built very good submarines and they've been building them for a long time but the deal we got i think was a very bad one and it ended up being bad for quite a few different reasons one is that we specified we australia specified uh the the performance characteristics of the boat in a way that were extremely demanding going back to what i was just saying uh, uh it's pretty clear that throughout the whole long process to try and reconfigure, uh, to replace the Collins, the old Collins submarines, the ones we've got at the moment with a new class of submarine. The, the Navy has focused primarily on operations in support of the United States Navy up in the South and East China Sea. In other words, they've been focusing on the tasks for, for, for our submarines, which would, which would be better undertaken by a nuclear powered boat. And indeed, uh, David Johnson, uh, the first of the, coalition governments, defence ministers, um, back when Tony Abbott won government, said literally on, in almost these words that, you know, what we're looking for in Australia is a nuclear submarine with conventional propulsion. Um, and I think, you know, that was, a, that was a moment of insight. But what that meant was that we were trying to get the French to build for us an extremely sophisticated and complex submarine with very high performance characteristics, the sort of performance you only get from nuclear propulsion. And indeed, what we got the French to do both that the French bid to us was a nuclear powered boat. And what we were saying to the French is, please take this nuclear reactor out of, out of your 
the Safren class, as the French call it, and replace it with a conventional diesel electric drive system um, to suit us. Now, this turned out to be an extremely expensive, extremely complex, very risky project. Um, so that was the first thing that we got wrong. The second thing we got wrong was that we went forward with the project without any without maintaining competition between alternative bidders. The way in which defence projects like this are best run um, is that um, instead of just going to one company and saying, please design us a submarine and we'll buy it from you, you go to two companies and say, would you both please design us a submarine? And you pay them to do it. You pay them quite a lot of money to do it. But but you by by keeping two designers in the project, uh, then you have competition between them, and so you can you can uh, re rely on their competition with one another to keep their price down and their performance up. We we made the mistake of not doing that with the French. We selected the French ahead of the Japanese and the German bids uh, back uh, under the, under Malcolm Turnbull, and then the, so we put the French essentially in uh, in a monopoly position. And with the best will in the world any company in a monopoly position is going to take you for a ride. And I think the French were probably doing that. Um, and the third thing was that we put a huge emphasis on, on work done in Australia. It's always very tempting for defence ministers and for the Navy, for that matter, to, to advertise the value of major shipbuilding or submarine building projects by talking about jobs in Australia. And of course, you know, it is a good idea to spend as much money out of the defence budget as you can in Australia. But I think the the, the defence industry uh, tail started wagging the capability dog pretty badly on this, and so a lot of decisions were made which made sense in terms of op optimising um, opportunities for Australian industry, but not in terms of optimising uh, our capability. And the last point is, I just think um, it, that the project was not very well and rigorously administered by defence, and I think you know there are some deep seated problems about uh, about the way in which defence goes about. Um, uh, major projects, and I think a lot of those problems, which we see in a lot of different projects, were very much to the fore uh, in this one. And the result was we were shopping for this enormously complex submarine, which was going to be unbelievably expensive. It was going to cost us two or three times as much, literally, as comparable conventionally powered boats. It was going to cost us nearly as much as a, as a, as a, as a nuclear-powered submarine. Uh, it was going to be very going to be delayed for a very long time. We weren't going to get them at all quickly. Um, and so I think the, the government was actually right to abandon the French deal, though I think arguably they were wrong to do it the way they did. And I think also arguably they're wrong to, to head for nuclear propulsion rather than an alternative source for conventional for a conventionally powered boat. Can I just ask you in relation to that, do you think there's something fundamentally wrong in our bureaucratic defence arrangements for defence procurement that are causing blowouts in, in major acquisitions like this? Or is this just an inevitable um, uh, consequence of, of, of major projects? Well, look, it's a good, it's a very good question, David. I mean, it, it is always worth bearing in mind that these are enormously complex projects and we shouldn't be surprised that, that problems arise when you're talking about, you know, very complex technologies, um, uh, often, you know, right at the cutting edge of um, of current capabilities and long projects with timeframes that are measured not just in years but sometimes in decades. So we shouldn't be surprised that things sometimes go wrong. But I think it's also true that we've had a particularly bad run in Australia over the last actually couple of decades. We've had some successes in the past, 
the Anzac Ship Project in the late nineties, in the late eighties, and, and into the nineties was very successful. The, the Collins Submarine Project, although it was not without its problems, ended up being very successful. Um, uh, and I and I so I think you know we 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 can get things right if we if we really choose to, um, but we often don't. And I think there's some good reasons for that. One is I don't think it, we, uh, our acquisition processes. Um, are, are made much harder by the fact that we don't have a clear military strategy. It's, we're not clear what we want our submarines, or for that matter, other parts of our defence force to do. And so going back to something we talked about a minute ago, we, um, we, we don't have a very clear consensus in Australia of what the ADF is for, what the Australian Defence Force is for. And so there's, a you know, for, for decades really, it was agreed and accepted the primary function for the ADF and the thing that determined the capabilities we should buy was the need to defend Australia directly. It was the old Defence of Australia doctrine that was adopted after the Vietnam War and codified in the 1976 White Paper and the 1987 White Paper. And um, and that, you know, you, and you could have a debate about whether that was the right strategy or not, but at least it gave us a very clear basis for making force structure decisions. For a long time now, really, I think for almost 20 years, uh, governments have been steadily moving away from the defence of Australia, but have never replaced it with anything else. And so we now have no clear idea at all what it exactly is where we're, we're building our defence force to do. And if you look at recent defence policy statements like the defence update that the government published last year, it's extremely vague, almost, I would say, almost incoherently vague about what exactly we want the ADF to be able to do. And if you can't say what we want the ADF to be able to do, then you can't say what kind of forces we need to do it with any clarity. And so you end up, for example, in this case, um, uh, buying submarines or trying to buy submarines, which are extremely sophisticated, extremely expensive, um, very risky in the sense that we're looking, we're being very demanding um, uh, as to what they can perform and that's going to make it harder to get them right and more likely to be delays and cost overruns. Um, and, and without the sort of firm criteria for what we need our forces to be able to do, it's very easy for the, for the specifications that we're trying to meet to just keep escalating until we start buying things which sort of can't be made to work. So I think that's one fundamental problem. Another problem is, is the point I touched on before, and that is the way in which the defence industry aspirations wag the capability dog. That is that uh, you know, governments have always been keen to, to emphasise the, the direct benefits to the Australian economy of major defence projects. But I think in the last decade or so, that's got right out of hand. It used to be the case the government were pretty stringent in saying, yes, we're looking for, for industrial opportunities and economic opportunities for Australian companies. But our primary concern is to acquire the best capability for Australia at the, at the best possible price. And more recently, the government, I mean, in the last five years, the government has quite overtly uh, been saying that, the, that, that the, the, the naval shipbuilding program is being shaped to optimise opportunities for Australian industry. Now, that seemed to me to be putting the cart before the horse in a very big way. And that, that leads you to make dumb decisions, to take riskier decisions, to try to do things in Australia that should be better done overseas and so on. But the th a third factor, I think, is that... Um, uh, and this is quite a complex long-term issue, um, the, the, the amount of actual engineering expertise within the individual defence forces and within defence as a whole has waned over the last few decades. 
Um, and that it was in some ways a result of some what, what might have been seen as quite sensible reforms that were undertaken in the 80s and 90s, when a whole lot of functions that used to be performed inside defence were outsourced as a sort of form of microeconomic reform because it could be done more cheaply. But what that meant is that the, the vast sort of um, reservoir of engineering talent and expertise that used to sit in the Navy, for example, or, or sit in, in the civilian defence organisation, um, has been significantly eroded in recent years. So we just don't have the amount of expertise, engineering expertise, and it's always worth remembering these are really engineering problems that can tell us what's the, what are we really trying to achieve? What's the most cost-effective way of achieving it? What are the risks of, of, of taking different kinds of approaches? And um, the last point is that I think we have abandoned competition. Uh, as I mentioned before, um, in, in relation to the French project, one of the big mistakes we made there was to fail to provide competitors to keep the French honest or keep their feet to the fire. I'm not saying they were dishonest, but they, they weren't subjected to the discipline which only competition can provide. Now, if we go back, for example, to the Collins project, which I mentioned before, there we, we went out to two different designers, a German company and a Swedish company, to design and develop contracts for the for, simultaneously, and we paid both both uh, both contenders quite a lot of money to do that. It's called a funded project definition study approach, and uh, and the the beauty of that is that right up to the point where you have a fully developed design and a and a firm tender price, you've got competition between these two guys, and that and that keeps them both honest and keeps the prices down. Now the 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 problem across a number of projects recently. Is we've stepped away from that um, you know, commitment to competition and have tended to build these what are supposed to be cosy relations with, uh, with, with, with suppliers like the relationship with the French, where there was a lot of talk about how you know, the two countries were going to were in a strategic partnership and the, this strategic partnership would provide the basis for our cooperation on submarines. Well, that was a bit over romantic. In the end, it was a commercial arrangement. The French were selling us something. Um, we were buying something from them. And uh, without the discipline of competition, we couldn't get a very good deal. So I think the, 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 the last problem that I need to identify is that across the board, across a lot of different projects, we've allowed competition to lapse. And what we need to do is to bring competition right back into the way in which we develop and manage these projects. Right. The next series of questions are about the implications of this decision for the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, yes. which we've adhered to since the 70s, and Defence Reliance, which you've addressed. So questions like, is the establishment of a civilian nuclear industry something that might flow from this decision? Are there implications in having and managing new nuclear-propelled submarines, submarines for our adhesion to the NPT? And um, if we don't need a civilian nuclear industry, how dependent will we be on our allies for the maintenance and operation of the fleet? And again, is this consistent with having a self-reliant uh, defence policy? Yeah, look, really, really good uh, question, David. I think, let me let me talk about the nuclear non-proliferation uh, aspects of it first, because um, it's a bit of a self-contained issue. Um, the government, uh, and for that matter, the Australian government, but also the, the Americans and the British in announcing uh, this new arrangement, uh, all went to great pains to stress that uh, that there was no talk about Australia acquiring nuclear weapons and everything will be done strictly in accordance with the non-proliferation treaty and so on. Um, and I, I dare say they mean all of that. 
it is worth making the point first off that there's no there's no sort of logical or necessary commitment between acquiring nuclear propulsion for one submarine and acquiring nuclear weapons. Um, they are different technologies for different purposes and so on. Um, but it's not to say there aren't some connections, um, and it is just worth exploring those. One is at the, at the legal level, so to speak, at the, the treaty level. Um, uh, the, the, the different countries' um, uh, uh, compliance with the Non-Proliferation Treaty is very strictly monitored by the International Atomic, Atomic Energy Agency. And, and so there's a major sort of international infra bureaucratic infrastructure which manages this process. Um, and Australia is one of the countries of very high standing on this. We obey all the rules. There are no, there are no loopholes. There are no gaps. There are no uncertainties. Australia is, is very conscientious on this. Now, acquiring nuclear propulsion, nuclear-powered submarines from Britain or America will a little bit undermine that because the, the reactors uh, that both the British and the Americans use to drive their, their nuclear-powered submarines run off highly enriched uranium. This is the same kind of uranium you use to make nuclear weapons with. And so for the first time, if and when we take delivery of our nuclear-powered submarines, Australia will, will have out in, under its control some fissile material that could be used to build nuclear weapons for the first time since, the, since we signed the NPT. And what's more, that fissile material is not going to be subject to IAEA inspections because there's a loophole in the IAEA system, which says that, um, uh, not quite in these words, but whose effect is that um, a submarine or, or I think even ship-based nuclear propulsion systems are excluded from the scope of uh, IAEA inspections, and that's because they don't want IAEA inspectors going to see on nuclear-powered submarines. And so it will actually somewhat qualify Australia's position in relation to the IAEA. Now, whether that's very significant in the grand sweep of history is a different question, but I do think it's a uh, it's it's just worth noting that it's going to be a complication of our relationship with the with the with the NPT. The second point I make though is that more broadly, um, the fact that Australia has made this decision and that Britain and America have made the very significant decision to support it is itself a big sign of a change of the changing strategic times. It used to be the case that people just took it for granted that countries like Britain and America would never share their nuclear propulsion technology, not because they were prevented from doing so by the IAEA or by the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, just because this is crown jewel stuff, it's sort of sacred. And there's it, also the, 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 the significant fact that the only countries in the world that have nuclear-powered submarines are also nuclear weapon states. Now, there is a reason for that, and that is that one of the, we talked before about the relative advantages and disadvantages of nuclear versus conventional power, but for the particular function that nuclear weapon states use their submarines for, that is for keeping their nuclear weapons at sea so they're invulnerable, nuclear power makes tons of sense. And so it would be quite natural for other countries around the world, other countries in our region, to look at Australia and see, ask, why is Australia buying nuclear-propelled submarines? Is it because they want sometime in the future to have the option of basing nuclear weapons on nuclear-powered submarines? Now, it, it, I'm not saying that, that, that there's, a, there's a clear implication there. I am saying that I, I would be surprised if it didn't raise questions. And, of course, the point about the way the whole non-proliferation regime has worked around the world since the NPT was negotiated and signed in the late 60s and early 70s 
is that it does depend on everybody believing that everybody else is complying to it, comply with it. So even a slight, slight doubts, I think might uh, might um, might be a might affect things. And, and the other thing is, I think it's going to be very interesting to see how other countries in the region, particularly other US allies, react to America's and Britain's decision. Because if you're South Korea, for example, which is a country that takes its submarine cap capability very seriously, builds its own submarines, pretty good boats like that too. I, I would be surprised if uh, if people in the South Korean Navy, and for that matter, in the Japanese Navy right now, are not saying, well, <coughs> if the Australians can have nuclear propulsion, why can't we? Now, they're in a different position. They're, they're if you like, they're, they face much more direct strategic threats. They have North Korea on their doorstep. They have China just across the road. Um, no one would be surprised if either North Korea or, or Japan, for that matter, not this year or next year, but in a decades in the decades to come, opted for nuclear weapons. And so, for them, taking that step would make a lot of sense. So, I just make the point that we're now in an era in which things that used to be unthinkable, like Australia getting nuclear-powered submarines, suddenly become thinkable, and that means lots of other questions come on come on the table. So, I think there is, although there's no direct nuclear weapons proliferation consequence from this, I think the indirect consequences could be quite significant. Um, now, the whole point about the relation between civil nuclear program and, and this propulsion program is also a very significant one. And I think there are a couple of points to be made there. The first is that, um, as the government has said, there's no necessary connection between having nuclear propelled submarines and having nuclear power industry, for example. But it is true that no country in the world that operates nuclear-powered submarines uh, does not also have a civil nuclear industry. And, and, and uh, I think, you know, the, one of the reasons for that is that a civil nuclear industry obviously provides you with the infrastructure of nuclear engineering expertise that you need to run your nuclear-powered submarines. And one of the things that's going to be extremely difficult for Australia, and one of the reasons why, as I said before, when I was talking about the comparison between them, the risks and complexity of nuclear-powered submarines seems to me to be one of the factors that weighs against them, is that we're going to need to build up the expertise to operate these submarines and the nuclear power plants in these submarines from a very low base of nuclear expertise and much lower than would be the case if we had nuclear power stations all around the country. And so uh, I think that's, you know, that, does add, that does add to the risk and cost to us and the other side, of course, is that it, 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 it would be surprising if there was not a strong argument made by some people that if Australia has, so to speak, um, crossed the Rubicon of deciding that it's happy to have eight nuclear reactors floating around the country in submarines, it is not prepared to have a nuclear reactor <laughs> built on land to generate electricity. It just seems to me that it makes the argument for civil nuclear program easier. And, of course, there are some, you know, that feeds into a lot of discussions about how you provide baseload power um, in a carbon neutral way and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so I, I, I would be surprised if that issue doesn't get raised. The last point is the point you made about, so to speak, sovereignty and sovereign control. Given that Australia is going to be taking, um, taking this step, acquiring, if the program goes ahead, uh, nuclear powered submarines with, without having a strong, robust local um, nuclear engineering um, infrastructure, then inevitably we're going to depend a lot on our allies for keeping these boats going. And uh, I think although there's always a degree of 
interaction and even dependence on allies for keeping complex systems going. I think the degree of dependence is going to be much higher with these boats. I think inevitably um, we will depend a lot on Britain or America or both for, for maintaining the reactors and, and keeping the boats going. Um, and I'm sure that's what they want. They don't want to lose control of this technology. They want to keep a, a firm hand on it. So, and that that will um, raise risks for us that in a future conflict, if our interests don't coincide with Britain's or America's, then the support we're looking for might not be forthcoming. Now, a lot of people regard that as kind of unthinkable because they'd say, you know, that, you know, Britain and America are our friends. You know, as Scott Morrison called them our forever partners. It shows to me a rather superficial understanding of the complex history of Australia's alliances with both of those countries, as uh, as you know <laughs> as well as anyone. But it, um, but it, you know, there's that sort of romanticised, uh, sentimentalised view of the alliances that suggests that there's never going to be any problem. I don't think we can afford to assume that. Uh, we only have to look at the pressure that America today is putting on Saudi Arabia to suspend its war in Yemen. I'm not trying to defend Saudi's uh, activities in Yemen, but the Americans are putting the squeeze on the Saudis because they don't like the Saudis fighting that war. I don't find it impossible to imagine that uh, 20 or 30 or 40 years from now, and those are the timeframes we're talking about, uh, that America's strategic interests or Britain's strategic interests and objectives vary from ours, differ from ours enough for that to become an issue. So I will always think that Australia should do whatever it can to minimise its dependence on other countries. And another reason why I'd be hesitant about going the nuclear-powered submarine route is that I think that rather than minimising that dependence and maximising it. Uh, the great thing about diesel engines and electric generators is it's pretty simple technology, which we in Australia understand pretty well. And I'd, I think that would be a strong reason to stick to that if you possibly can. Okay, now the foreign policy implications of this, we'll, we'll first deal with what do you see the implications for of this decision for our relations with Europe with the region, the Southeast Asian region, ASEAN particularly, and the Pacific, particularly New Zealand? Yeah, no, really good question. Well, the first point to make is obviously the, the decision, or at the very least the way it's been handled, has done nothing for our relations with France. Um, and I, I don't think we should be surprised by that. Um, it was worth making the point, to be clear. I, I do think the French project was a dud, and I think we were right to get out of it. Um, I think it, the, uh, many of the problems, for the reasons that we explored a, a little earlier, I think were as much Australia's fault as France's. Um, uh, but I, I don't, I don't criticise the government for having decided to get out from under the French deal. I do criticise them from the, for the for the way it was done, and I, I just don't think there was any possible excuse for allowing the French to be blindsided the way that they were. I might also say that I, I would bet that that. We, we have caused a lot of anger in Washington about this because the, the, the French anger has been turned as much against Washington as it has against us. And although you might say that in the long run, it doesn't matter too much to Australia if we irritate France, France really matters to America because it's a very important European country um, and it's a significant um, injury to America's strategic position in Europe that it has uh, been tied up with uh, with this sort of greater front to France. And the Americans were clearly relying on us to handle the French. I think we failed to do that, and I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if a lot of people in Washington, D.C. at the moment aren't saying, no, those bloody Australians let us down on this. Um, but, look, in the long run, I think we'll build a relationship with France again. I don't think that's that's quite so, that's quite so serious. Um, I think the question about its implications 
for our relations in uh, Southeast Asia in particular are, are, are much more significant and much more complicated. And this does go to a, a broader question, which I guess we may well come back to, and that is what it means for our long-term relationship with the United States and our position in, in Asia. But in a nutshell, the, the fact that we've that we've taken this step, which I do think is a significant tightening of our engagement with the United States and with Britain, um, uh, is, if like to put it in Paul Keating's or Bob Hawke's terms, it's it, it is Australia sort of pulling back from Asia and returning to the Anglosphere, returning to the era, the Menzies era of great and powerful friends. And, you know, if you remember where we got to in the 1980s and 1990s, and in a sense where we've been going ever since the 1940s and 50s, of, of ever-increasing emphasis on the way in which we would build Australia's position with the countries of Asia. And, you know, Hawke and Keating had this phrase that in the future we'd seek our security not from Asia, by siding with our Anglo-Saxon allies, but in Asia and with Asia, and and this 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 uh, this decision seems to me to be a very significant step back from that. Um, and I mean, to, to be more specific about that, it, what we've done is to align ourselves very closely with US and to a certain extent, to a lesser extent, UK strategy uh, towards China, and that is a strategy of confrontation and containment. It's a strategy that says that in America's case, we're determined to preserve the US-led order in Asia and that um, uh, and that we're not going to make any significant accommodation of China's aspirations to a bigger role in the region. Um, and uh, and that's, uh, and, and uh, you know, we'll just push back as hard as we can and try and get the Chinese back into their box. Uh, and the, the, our problem is that, that that's not a, a strategy and approach to China, which the countries of Asia accept. And not even the Japanese really accept that, but certainly not the South Koreans, none of the Southeast Asians accept that. They do believe that China has to be, to some extent, at least accommodated. Now, that's not to say they give the Chinese everything they want, but it is to say that the country which has now got the world's biggest economy and is the most important trading partner for every country in the region cannot simply be told to do what it's told. Uh, which really is, you know, a, a slightly colourful but not 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 seriously exaggerated way of describing the US position to which Australia is now more deeply committed. And I think, um, you know, that's going to alienate us further from Asia. And we saw this in the way in which Malaysia and, and Indonesia, for example, reacted explicitly to the decision. But I think you'll also see it in, um, in countries like Singapore. You know, Singapore's leader, actually, Lee Shen-Lung, has been very clear on a number of occasions that he does not support the idea of a new Cold War in Asia. What he sees is the countries of Asia and countries like America needing to come to terms with the reality of China's power and learning to live with it. And, and this is Australia saying exactly the opposite. This is Australia saying, yes, we're with the Americans all the way and what they're doing. And I think that is, and the, the symbolism of Australia taking that stand, and particularly taking that stand in, a, in, in alliance with and particularly in a nuclear-flavoured alliance with Britain and America, just further emphasises how far we are from really working with our neighbours in our neighbourhood on what are essentially regional strategic questions. And I, so I think that's going to weaken Australia's position uh, as a partner of ASEAN very significantly. Do you think, do you think it, ALCAS has locked us into a strategy, for example, of a forward position with the US and the South China Sea in a way that has irrevocably 
staked our position in relation to China or is there a way, there are a way future governments can adapt and evolve the relationship in a way that they have in previous uh, years? Yeah, look, I, th I think it's a really, it's a really critical question, David, and I think um, there's a, there remains some uncertainty about that. I mean, as, as we said right at the beginning of, of this conversation, you know, AUKUS, at least as we've seen at the moment, is not a treaty. It doesn't embed really specific commitments. Our, our strategic commitments to the United States in terms of the alliance are still as set out in the ANZUS Treaty, which are significant, broadly framed, but significant. So I don't think in that, in that sort of ultimate sense, AUKUS has, has sort of strengthened our fundamental strategic commitment to the United States. What it's done is just given it, uh, or at least if if if, if and as the, the 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 initiative bears fruit, it will just uh, give a lot more substance and actual operational content to that broad the broad strategic statements in ANZUS. And you know it, it is it is by by doing by taking the steps we're taking, uh, by 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 opting for nuclear powered submarines, which are so clearly designed specifically not to defend Australia directly, but to support the United States in operations against the Chinese. We, we are drawing ourselves more and more closely into uh, US strategy on China, and that makes it harder for us to differentiate ourselves from the US, which is something we've long sought to do. And it will make us harder, make it harder for us to say no to the US when they ask us to do more things in the future. I mean, you know, this is, this is power politics, so there's absolutely nothing comes for free. So, um, you know, I think Scott Morrison was quoted as saying while he was in Washington that there have been no quid pro quos in this deal. I, you know, I, I, all I can say is, well, not yet. But, you know, <laughs> now, now, now the deal has been announced, uh, the Americans are in a very good position to ask us for more. Um, I'd be very surprised if the US doesn't seek to base more systems in Australia and doesn't, down the track, seek Australia to, to make more concrete um, more irrevocable commitments to supporting the United States operationally far from home in, in Northeast Asia. And so I do think this the, the, the natural consequence of this um, thickening up of the strategic relationship is going to be that Australia is more committed to support the United States in peacetime, so to speak, in its diplomacy with China, and more committed to support the United States in preparations for war with China, and more committed to support the United States if a war comes. And so I think our freedom of manoeuvre has been reduced. Now, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing depends on whether you think um, uh, America's policy in relation to China is likely to work or not. The more confident you are that the Americans are getting China right and that they know what they're doing, then the better it is for Australia to be closely aligned with that. But if, like me, you're doubtful that the Americans really have really got a, an answer to the China problem, certainly an answer to our China problem, then the less sense it makes for us to commit ourselves irrevocably to supporting that and, and the less sense it makes for us to alienate ourselves from cooperation with our neighbours. Okay, so maybe the final question can be, what scope do future Australian governments have to modify or amend this relationship? Or has this decision by the current government locked us in Yes, well, that's a, that's a very interesting question. Um, look, I, I think there is, so to speak, in, in legal terms, um, there's plenty of scope to get out of this. We haven't actually signed any contracts yet. The government itself has said that there's going to be a 12 to 18 month period where um, the three countries get together and, and try and work out what the hell this means and how it's going to be done. 
Um, and and it's possible, I think unlikely, but possible, uh, that at the end of that period they'll say, gosh, this looks all too hard, let's do something else. Um, it, I think it's, that's very unlikely to happen if Scott Morrison's still Prime Minister. If there was a different Prime Minister, it would, it, that would be possible. Once the project gets underway, then for the submarines in particular, then it's going to become harder and harder and more and more costly to unpick it. But I, I, I don't think that's I don't think it's impossible to do that. I mean, after all, people regarded our commitment to the French project as irrevocable until they discovered it was going bad on us. And you know, if I was a betting man, which I'm not, but if I was a betting man, I would be prepared to bet a, a you know, a case of moderately priced red wine that this project will that we'll never see an Australian nuclear-powered submarine because this project there's so many difficulties in it that some future government reviewing where we've got to will will say oh, this is all too hard. And in particular, when they look at the time frames, because you know this is right at the heart of this problem is the fact that um, nuclear submarines are so complex, it's going to take us so long to get them, that they won't be here <laughs> until long well, well after it's too late. You know, they, uh, the, the government's own announcement is that the first of the nuclear-powered boats would, uh, would enter the water around 2040. Well, it will be a couple of years after that before it's, um, before it's ready to go operational. Uh, so, you know, it might be 2042 or 2043 for the first boat in the water. And then on an optimistic, and that's assuming that nothing goes wrong in the project, which it almost certainly will. And then, you know, you'd be very optimistic to expect that you can deliver a new boat, an additional boat, uh, more often than every two years. So the eight boats are going to take 16 years from 2040, say 2041, 2040. So it's going to be the mid-50s, even the late 50s, before we actually have eight submarines. Well, <laughs> that's 30 years from now. 30, 30 years ago, China's economy was smaller than Australia's. Mm -hmm. 30 years from now, we're going to be in a different world. And I, my judgment would be that, in fact, although the government has made great, and so are the French and British governments, the British, American and British governments have made great play of this being part of our response to China. The fact is that the strategic contest between America and China over which of them is going to be the dominant power in the Western Pacific and East Asia will be over before the first of these submarines is in the water. You know, this contest is going on now, and these contests don't drag on forever. They, they tend to, you know, the, his, the history tells you that, that these things tend to get resolved. Um, and so I would, I would say that um, as governments look at what's unfolding, there's a pretty fair chance that sometime down the track we will just step back from this. But if we do, then it will have left one, if, if we do step back from this whole proposal and go back to some other way of buying submarines, it will have nonetheless left a durable mark on our force structure because it means that yet again we'll delay initiating a practical, achievable, sensible, irrational project to replace our submarine capability. And there's a very real chance that our submarine capability will wither and die, that the old colons will, will run out of life before we have any new submarines in the water and that we'll end up without a submarine capability in the decades when I would argue we're going to most need them. So if you're going to sum up, has this decision been a good decision, a sound one? How would you, how would you describe this decision that was made a couple of weeks ago? Uh, I, I think it was a bad decision. I think it's bad strategically and bad operationally. It's bad strategically because it ties us more closely to a US policy on 
uh, on China, which I don't think is going to succeed. I think the, 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 we need a more sophisticated US approach, and I haven't seen any signs of getting that. And as a result, I think there's a good chance the United States will withdraw from Asia rather than stick around. And I think it's a bad decision operationally because I don't think they're the submarines we need. And I don't think we're buying them in a smart way. We're going to get a very expensive and very complex technology that we won't be able to maintain for ourselves and that we don't really need for our own most important operational tasks. So what I would do, if it was me, would be to, would be to head back out into the marketplace and try and find uh, uh, two companies to compete with one another to design and build for us a class of submarines that look a lot like an upgraded version of the Collins good, big, conventionally powered submarine, which do what we need, which could be got for two billion bucks a copy, that we know we can operate, and we're pretty sure we can build. Well, on that note, it's my, uh, I'll, I'll, we'll call the podcast to an end, and thank you very much for giving us your time this morning. It's my great pleasure. Thank you, David. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you.